Hello and welcome to the Who's He podcast. On this episode, we have the last of our exclusive interviews, which was recorded especially for the Who's He podcast in 2016 at the Science of the Thomas Convention held at the National Space Centre in Leicester. And as we started this series of interviews with the previous Doctor, it only seems fitting to finish off with another one, as John Lindsay interviews the seventh Doctor himself, Sylvester McCoy, in front of the convention audience. So, for the last time, let's hop in the TARDIS and go back to 2016 and hand over to Sylvester and John Michael. Sylvester, thank you very much for joining us at the National Space Centre Science of the Time Lords event. Thank you for asking me to come. Great pleasure. This is also being recorded for the Who's He podcast, so for those of you that haven't heard this bit, if you have a question for Sylvester and you don't want it featuring in the recording, just let us know when you ask the question, we'll edit it out before it goes to the show. And I will supply you links if you ask me for where you can hear it later on. Sylvester, I'd like to start right at the beginning if I may, because Sylvester's not your real name, is it? No, I'm not the real Mackay. <laughs> <laughs> you are Percy James Patrick Kent Smith. Hi. Fantastic. Now, there, there's quite a story about how the name Sylvester came about, isn't there? Well, there is, yes. I mean, uh, uh, I, I joined, I became an actor by accident. Someone mistook me for an actor and offered me a job, and I took it. And I still haven't been found out 40 years later. So I'm a totally untrained human being as far as acting and musicals and operas. And I've been in all these things. Um, uh, the only thing I trained at was spoon playing. And the only way you could learn how to spoon play in those days was to go to prison. Because that's the, you know, the prisoner's musical instrument, the spoons. Anyway, so if you want to learn spoons, get arrested. <laughs> But um, I joined this group called the Ken Campbell Roadshow, and the f for the first year we did sketches, what we called them modern myths. Yes, they were very funny sketches. <laughs> and uh, we did them, uh, and uh, the rest of the crew was Bob Hoskins, Dave Hill, Jane Wood, Ken Campbell and myself, and we toured around. And then we did a circus for a summer, and we learned a whole lot of circus skills. And after that, I said to Ken Campbell, we should do a show using all these skills. So we came up with this idea of doing a show about a stuntman. Um, and, they, and Ken came up with the name, An Evening with Sylvester McCoy, the Human Bomb. Now, nowadays, that's not very funny. In fact, it's horrible. But in those days, in the days of innocence, um, I used to explode a bomb in my chest and get a laugh. Hello. Sorry, Ken. Uh, uh, no, you're down there, actually. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so we, we did this show. Uh, we actually took it to Israel. I exploded bombs in my chest. Yes, yeah, in Israel, of all places. And we took people out. And we did, I mean, it was complete madness. And it was, uh, as I say, days of innocence. You couldn't ever do that now. But when we went to London, we played at the Royal Court, which is kind of very posh theatre. We were upstairs and uh, we were going to get London um, uh, London uh, critics coming to see it. And Kane said, yeah, it'd be a really good idea if you pretended you were really Sylvester McCoy. So, shall we put it in the uh, the programme? And I said, yeah, why not? 
So we put Sylvester McCoy, played by Sylvester McCoy, and we said, Sylvester McCoy left the Newton Grammar School at 15 and went to India and studied with gurus, and that's why he could bang nails up his nose, explode bombs in his chest, set light to his head, escape from mailbags, uh, mentally combust cotton wool, nut a potato into a thousand pieces, have bricks broken on his chest, lay on a bed of nails, and various things common gardener things like that because those were all the stunts and many more that I used to do and also try and break the world record for having ferrets down my trousers <laughs> um, which is another story uh, so anyway so that's what we did we put it in the program Sylvester McCoy played by Sylvester McCoy and the one of the leading London critics at the time Milton Schumann he went he wrote a whole thing about it how wonderful it was he said this is the real McCoy this is wonderful so I thought ah we tricked him and then I, then I thought, actually, it's a rather good name. I think I'll keep it. So I phoned up equity and I said, are there any other Sylvester McCoys? And they said, no. And I said, well, there is now. And it's me. And so I became Sylvester McCoy. Fantastic. Now, your background is really quite varied. Indeed. Because I believe we very nearly didn't get you as an actor. I believe you actually studied to become a priest. Oh, yes. Yes, no, I was a trainee pope. <laughs> in those days, uh, they got you at the age of 11. I, I lived in the western Scotland, and my family, my mother's side, were uh, Irish immigrants, really. Molly Sheridan was my mother's name, it's a very Irish name. And we went to this Catholic primary school, and, and it was run by Rosie O'Grady. I mean, that, you, you, that's a name you make up, but she was real, she was our headmistress. And we were on the 11th, uh, I was 11, and at the end of primary school, and we used to have vocational talks. And, you know, she'd bring in a doctor, and he would talk about being a doctor, and afterwards she would leave, and she would say, is this me that's making this correctly? Hello? Anyway, after that, um, I would, we would all, she would ask this, the class, who wants to be a doctor? And we'd put our hands up, <laughs> and you do as well, don't you? And um, I didn't realise I'd end up as a doctor, but anyway, I put my hand up. <laughs> Then we had the, the bin man came one day and he talked about his work and who wants to be the bin man? So, you know, and then we had the, the captain of the paddle steamer because I lived on the Clyde and he came, talked about his job. So every job that anyone came, you know, the, uh, the doctors, nurses, whatever, we all put our hands up. And then one day a priest came and after he left, I put my hand up for that as well. As Danny Sweeney, myself and Maureen Cullen, we three of us put our hands up. He didn't get a big sale in the rest of this class. So something strange happened. Rosie O'Grady went, oh, right, you two boys can have the afternoon off and go see the priest and tell him you want to be a priest. Now, she hadn't given us the afternoon off to go and see the, you know, the steam captain or the, the, the doctor or the binman or the fireman. None of these things. But the afternoon off to go. Anyway, we were delighted. So off we set. Mary Cullen, for some reason, wasn't allowed to go. Anyway, off we set. I got to the... Uh, the man's, you know, the rectory knocked, and we're about to knock on the door, and Danny Sweeney lost his bottle. He said, I'm not one to be a priest. I said, you're a coward. <laughs> yes, I'm going to be a priest, so there. <laughs> and so I went out and knocked on the door, they opened the door, the priest came out and said, I want to be a priest, and then whoosh, before I could know it, I was, wow, sent off to a, a seminary. And so I, I started training to be a priest, and that was the deep religious calling I had. It was just to show Danny Sweeney what a coward he was. <laughs> and then when I got there, though, I loved it. I actually did love it. And it was very, very um, 
wondrously strange because where I come from in Dunoon is a kind of a very then it was a very insular little town it's almost an island and in the winter it's totally cut off and therefore it was very focused on itself and not really interested in much of the outside world really at least my family were but when I got to this place which later a priest called you know a Catholic Bostel really it was very hard life we led monastic life and um, we had to get up very early in the morning it was freezing up in the highlands of Scotland away our next door neighbor was Balmoral way up there you know in Aberdeen it was, they were noisy those neighbors we kept complaining <laughs> they were playing bagpipes and singing God save the Queen all the time said shut up <laughs> anyway uh, they were our neighbors but uh, we had to get up and do in the morning freezing cold I loved every minute of it and also we were cut off from the rest of the world but yet it introduced me to the whole world it introduced me to music classical music we used to have these wonderful uh, meals we had French nuns eat cooking for us I mean, the food was up to die for and we all nearly died of it really because we ate so much of it but on a Sunday some every month we used to have a silent meal where someone read to us and I used to love those. You just sit there, and someone would read, you know, like um, uh, stories of uh, travels in Rome and Spain and places like that. And I think that's where I got my bug for travelling. Uh, even though I was locked up in this seminary, and then, uh, uh, well, you know, the whole. In fact, the whole world was introduced to me while I was locked up in a seminary. I mean, we weren't locked up like, you know, because we were bad. We were locked up because we were good. <laughs> because we were good, we wanted to be priests. And in those days, that was thought to be a good idea. It's changed now. <laughs> anyway. And, but so, anyway, so that was it. I was trained to be a priest. Then I decided to become a monk. I thought, I'm going to, I got really into it, the role. I got housemaid's knee from praying. I decided I was going to be a saint. And then I become a monk because then you give everything up. So I wrote to the Dominican monks and they wrote back and I filled in forms and all was going, it went well, they accepted me and off I set from the seminary, got back to Dunoon, Argyll, Scotland and the Highlands and there was a letter there said, oh, just had one little problem, you're a year too young to join, uh, you know, so you have to. But by then I'd left the seminary, I was at home, I had to go to school and I went to Dunoon Grammar School which happened to be a mixed sex school. And of course I've been locked up all my teenage years and suddenly I was in a school where there were women. <laughs> Beautiful young women. And so I very quickly gave up the idea of wearing a skirt and chased it instead. <laughs> and so that was the end of me wanting to be the poop. So from there, after school, you ended up in insurance. Oh, How exactly did that happen? Well, I, there he is. What happened was that um, uh, um, Elspeth Calder broke my heart. I was 18, and um, so um, I, I, I left. Uh, luckily, my father was an Englishman, so that's, you know, the double-barrel name and all those funny Percy names and things. So uh, I had relations in London. So off I set. I left broken-hearted from the noon and went to London to find, make my fortune. When I got there, because I had this Percy James Patrick Kent-Smith name, I went to the, um, an employment office, the youth employment office they had then. I walked in and there was a rather bored man in a grey suit behind it. He said, yes. And I said, I've come to look for a job. Yes. Um, sit down. Oh, yes. Um, what's your name? Percy James Patrick Kent-Smith. I beg your pardon. <laughs> Percy James Patrick Kent Ivan Smith. Oh, really? 
Double barrelled, are you, sir? Oh, yes. Oh, sir. Right. Uh, where, where, where were you educated? Well, I was in a boarding, a boarding school. And suddenly I didn't know, but I was actually experiencing the positive side of the English class system. In Scotland, it's, you know, it's not so prevalent because the majority of Scots are kind of working lower middle class, as they were in those days, and a couple of aristocrats had all the other land. But down in England, you've got a wonderful complex class system. And I was actually going to have found out about it because I had a double barrel name and also because I went to a grammar school, a grammar school boy, and all that kind of stuff. Thing. And so I, I ended up getting a job in insurance, which I was terrible at. I hated it. But while I was there, I made, I made great... Uh, is there someone fiddling around somewhere? No. It's not a sound person, is it? No. Anyway, while, while I was there, um, uh, maybe it's the place is insured or something. <laughs> while I was uh, doing insurance, I made a great friend with an Irish uh, chap, Liam Woods. He had a photographic mind, he had great genius, brilliant. He went to the top of insurance and reinsurance in Dublin before he came to London. But he was Irish. And I was Scottish. Now, in the class system, uh, the Irish are looked down on, whereas the Scots are kind of patronised in a sort of way. This is way back then, in a kind of a way, but in a very nice way. The Scots are thought to be hardworking, and uh, you know, really get their head. Whereas the Irish, you know, they're really lazy. Now, the thing was that Elian was a genius. He could have made the millions. I was lazy. I, you know, they didn't realise that in fact. Part of me was Irish. I never told him. But anyway, <laughs> so maybe they were right. Maybe there is a prejudice. I just thought that. No, anyway. So I, uh, Liam Woods could have made them loads, but I got preference on the, you know, the going up the structure in the office kind of uh, hierarchy because I was a double-barreled name. I went to a grammar school. I was also at boarding school, and I was Scottish, whereas he was Irish and he was a genius. So you know that was the English class system. I learned very quickly. So um, it's sadly still around. <laughs> Not as much. So then you moved to the Roundhouse Theatre. Yeah, I believe in Chalk Farm. And yeah. but that wasn't initially for acting, was it? No, no, that was to earn a living. <laughs> <laughs> acting. Well, you don't act. Very, well, I, actually, I did earn a living in acting, but that was just a freak. Um, uh, yeah, what happened was that uh, the sixties arrived. One of the companies I was working for went bust. I kind of became unemployed, but then it was a good thing to be unemployed in those days. You could drop out. I grew my hair long. I became a hippie. You know, I had dangly bits and beads and things like that. Hipsters and uh, you know sandals, and uh, you know the odd little. <laughs> uh, and I did inhale, unlike the president, ex-president of the United States. <laughs> so it was the sixties. We all did that kind of stuff, and. The Roundhouse was a theatre in London, still is, but then it was kind of starting off and it was the hippie, the centre of the hippie revolution. Uh, some you know, amazing art, theatre, the rock and roll, music, the Stones played there, I was a bouncer for them one night, all that kind of stuff. It was the happening place and they, they needed someone in the box office. So what they really wanted was a hippie who could count and I could, I had all these skills from the city of London. So I was ideal for that job. So I got the job in the box office and I loved it because I was using the skills I had, but for some good reason. Because in the city it was like working for the reinsuring airline or airports or, but I, I mean, it was just boring and horrible and I hated it. 
but uh, using it wasn't the skills I hated having or using but when I f I found that at another time when I did I worked voluntary for a for VSO using my office skills and I love doing it so that, that's a secret if you if you've got these skills and you hate doing the job find something you like doing that using those skills for because then it makes it so much easier so how did Ken Campbell find you? Well, when I was in the Roundhouse, Brian Murphy of George and Mildred fame and uh, The Last of the Summer Wine, he was collecting the tickets I was selling when he wasn't working because his wife was uh, an administrator at the Roundhouse. So he'd come in and just hang around. And, and we used to just loon around, you know. Um, I remember we had local cut on, and, which is a very rude show, and he'd come in pretending he was a dirty old man and I'd throw him down the stairs. And then sometimes I'd come in pretending I was drunk and he'd throw me down the stairs. So we did this thing just to amuse ourselves, really. And he thought I was an actor. And then one day, Ken Campbell came in and said, Yeah, Brian, he said, I've got this mad show. It's almost let me down. And, uh, you know, I'm looking for some young actor. Any ideas? Brian said, that's the guy in the box office. He's out of his head. <laughs> so Ken came up to me and said, Yeah, do you want to join my show? And I said, yes. Because I always said yes to everything. I, 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 it's one of my philosophies of life is to say yes. And I think that's why my career has been so interesting, really. I've had an amazing career when I look back. It's because I've said, yeah, because I had also, luckily I wasn't a girl, because I can never say no. I mean, it was just one of those <laughs> things. Anyway, so I said yes, and uh, I joined the roadshow, and that was it, really. And ended up setting your head on fire. On yeah, exploding bombs in my chest and heading, blowing fire and setting my head on fire. Um, it was a trick, actually. I shouldn't tell you, but it was. Uh, I used to have a round tube, and in it was um, a flap, that, a flap that went down right here, and then there was cotton wool with, you know, kind of paraffin on it. And then they put a big flame down the, the tunnel, a funnel, and it would flame up. But one night, the um, we did a late night show, and the guy who did was supposed to do the flapping and all that. He was drunk and he forgot to, and he actually did set light to my head. So I had a, 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 I went in with a lot of hair, came out bold. <laughs> <laughs> so how, from the theatre and the roadshow, did you make the jump to television? Because of course then you went to things like Vision On and Tiswas and Jigsaw, which is where I first ever saw you as one of the omen yeah. in Jigsaw. Oh, yeah, was... So how did you make that leap from the stage onto television? Well, um, the, the, the director of Vision On, Clive Doig, he he came and saw the roadshow and really loved it and so he um he when there was a mime artist who was on it and he was leaving so he, he replaced i replaced him that was it really that was my first tv series it was it, it was a great for those that don't know it was a very visual series it started off 12 years before or maybe uh, nine years before anyway i think it lasted 12 years yeah it started off as a program for, you know, the, the deaf, and then gradually became a, a program that everyone could watch, which is great because that means deaf people, hard of hearing, uh, you know, could be equal to and with. And it became hugely popular, it won BAFTAs and Grand Prix de Jeunesse awards all over the place. It was a lovely program to do. And it's where Tony Hart Tony Hart started, well, and uh, also uh, Admin, you know, Admin. Um, morph yeah. morphed out yeah. of that and into you know the amazing Hardman uh, studios now they grew out of that 
Fantastic. So then you went on to things like Jigsaw, Tiz Was, which I remember watching as a child on Saturday mornings, which was fabulous. Uh, Eureka, Star Strider, uh, then a bit more serious stuff, BBC Two Playhouse, The Last Place on Earth, and you were with Martin Shaw, uh, Max von Sydow, and a very young Bill Nye and Hugh Grant. That's right, yes. Yeah, Bill and I and Hugh, yeah, we, we, uh, we spent 14 weeks on that, 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 that series and we actually spent five weeks in the Arctic. So you really get to know people because you're locked up in the Arctic. It was a great adventure. I loved it. I mean, I, and I loved being in the Arctic. It was just quite magical, really. It was extraordinary, this snow. They used to send us out, and we had to go out like on a banana shape like that because they were filming virgin snow. And we were in the Arctic, but, you know, no one complained. It's supposed to be the Antarctic, but, you know, the snow was the same. Anyway, um, we used to go out in this banana, and then they would make us wait while they worked out the shot and then said action and come and you used to stand there kind of freezing really cold freezing but you didn't shake with the cold it what it gone it went beyond that you actually just froze you became statue like you know you just did you tried not to move anything too much just to keep everything and the the strange thing about the arctic is that it is desert it, it is to try and get real snow they had to import snow from the south they had to fly snow up so we could have snow in you know in, in the shot and uh which is completely weird but now and again some snow would fall and it does fall like little flakes and each one is different you know as they say and it used to it was like kind of meditation you stand there for about an hour just looking at the snowflakes on your gray glove you know just and then you'd see your whole life it wasn't because you're going to die but uh, because it was all white you could actually I'd think of my family and I could see them you know think about them and what they did playing and, and it was just like a little film and then they show action and then off we'd you know, go in amazing so then you also had a very varied stage career as well you did solo shows as Stan Laurel and Buster Keaton yeah uh, Moliere and then for the Royal Shakespeare Company you uh, did the line the witch in the wardrobe and I believe if I'm right your first meeting with Sarian McCallum before you went on as Radagast in the Hobbit films was as his fool in King Lear. Well, yes, it wasn't quite the first meeting. I remember meeting him once, somewhere, some social thing. And someone said, oh, Ian, this is Sylvester McCoy. And he looked down and he said, yes, I've heard of you. <laughs> that was my first meeting. But then uh, then the second meeting was we, when we started rehearsals for King Lear. And we were all arrived in the room, and, came, and Ian came in, and he was a bit nervous uh, and kind of apprehensive, as people are sometimes at these things. It's a bit, and he came in, and he was very serious looking. And Trevor Nunn took me up to meet him and said to him, Ian, uh, this is your fool. And he looked down and said, Hello. And then he said, um, You know, I had. Uh, I had. Uh, I, uh, what's the word? I, I had a. Uh, I could say yes or no to an actor one only one part he said i could say you know i could say veto or not and i thought that would be cordelia because in king lear the king at the end has to carry cordelia his daughter dead onto the stage and i thought yeah well obviously you want to go and find the skinniest cordelia you can get <laughs> but we had um, uh, what's her name uh, i'm so bad at names uh, they will come to me well, anyway we had a rather voluptuous cordelia 
And I remember thinking, well, wow, I hope Ian's strong, because every night and twice on Saturdays, he's got to carry her onto the stage at the end of a very, very heavy play. But no, he t looked at me and he said, no, no, um, it was you. And I decided not that you should do it. I said, well, thank you very much. But I had a feeling that maybe he regretted it at that moment. I don't know. But we, um, he also said to me, this is at the very beginning, he said, you know, in Shakespeare, the King Lear and the Fool, they never get on. The two actors never get on. And he told the story about John Gilgood met Ralph Richardson somewhere. And John said, oh, dear boy, um, what are you doing? He said, I'm playing uh, Leah up at Stratford. Oh, look out for your fool. Look out for your fool. And that's what he told me. This, this is the beginning. <laughs> but by the end of it, he came up to me the very last day and he said, you know, uh, Sylvester, he said, um, we've made history because we got on. And he said, it's thanks to you. And I said, no, no, it's two of us. It takes two to tango. And um, but under my breath, I thought, no, it was thanks to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, you went back across New Zealand to shoot the Hobbit films. What was that like as an experience for you? That was amazing. I mean, that, because we, the King Lear, we toured we, for a year and a half. We toured the world and we went to New Zealand and we met Peter Jackson. And Peter Jackson took, invited me, uh, Frankie Barber, who was playing Cordelia, and Ian up to their um, country uh, mansion place, which was very, you know, and, and I knew I was auditioning for something. I had a feeling, do you know what I mean? I knew, God, I had a whole weekend. Now, normally you go for an audition or go to meet someone, have a meeting, it's only half an hour, you know, at the most. You could be charming for half an hour, but for a whole weekend. <laughs> so I was kind of, oh God, I, hope, I know I'm gonna put my foot in it. I know that they're looking at me for something, but I know I'm gonna put my foot in it. But I didn't. I managed not to put my foot in it. Um, and so I, I got the part of Radagast from that, really. Then uh, flying out was such a huge adventure, flying around the world. I flew around the world on those three years about seven times. I threw it around the world seven times. So each time I went, I lost a day in my life. <laughs> so I'm now seven, I'm a week younger than I was when I started The Hobbit. <laughs> so, uh, and I made it an adventure. I'd go sometimes out two weeks early and go to India for two weeks. Or when I was coming back, maybe two weeks, go to China or, or the South Sea Islands or travel. I mean, I, ma I made it a huge adventure. Or, or Dubai, you know, just pop in places because they were paying for first class flights and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, wait, why not? Why not, didn't you? <laughs> Even though they put shit all over me, but I mean that was you know, <laughs> birds poop and poop. Oh, um, yeah. So it was great adventure. I love doing it. Fantastic. Now I would love to sit here and talk to you about the Marigold Hotel. And to be honest, I could talk to you all day. But unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, we have run out of time with Sylvester. He will be back later on with Sophie together. We will let you ask all the questions you want. But for now, please give a very, very big thank you for Mr. Sylvester McCoy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks once again to John Michael and the folks at the Science of the Times Convention for bringing us this interview. And we really hope you've enjoyed listening to these interviews over the last few weeks. We're extremely honoured to have had them recorded, especially for this podcast, and I hope we can bring you more interviews from the Doctor Who universe in the future. So, until next time then, it's goodbye from me, Phil.
goodbye. Thank you for listening if you don't want to miss the show please don't forget to subscribe to us on apple podcasts and if you get time please also give us a review you can also listen to our podcast via our website which you can find at www.whos-he-podcast.co.uk and you can also listen to us on spotify google podcasts amazon music player fm and tune in if you'd like to leave us some feedback about the show please visit us on our twitter account which is who's underscore he underscore podcast. And can also find us on Facebook, just looking up the Who's He Podcast Facebook group. 